You're listening to the Beauty Plus Justice podcast, where we talk with folks from a variety of fields about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. These conversations are led by Dr. Tamara James Todd, a trailblazer at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health and head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab. And I'm your host, Lisa Johnson, a PhD candidate at Harvard Chan. Hey, listeners. I can't believe that we're at the beginning of the end of our limited series podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to part one of our finale episode. We're a small but devoted team, some might say a dynamic duo, that have worked to put this podcast out into the world for the past six months. And for this episode, I'm going to do something new and step into the interviewee's chair along with my amazing colleague and fellow PhD candidate, Marissa Chan. She's not only been the producer of the podcast, putting together the wonderful audio you hear every other week, but she's also been a lot of the brains behind the pre-production work, organizing the interviews, conducting pre-episode interviews, and researching to help put together questions and content that have been so rich and informative over the last 12 episodes. Today, we're both going to be joining Dr. Tamir James Todd to talk about our perspectives on the beauty justice movement and how our dissertation research fits into that. Now, without further ado, here's Dr. Tamir James Todd to get the conversation started. Um, couldn't have done it without you all. So I just want to introduce um, amazing students, future scientists, current scientists, I should say, that are really um, the vision and the, you know, the motivators and the 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 movers and shakers that are making this podcast possible. Uh, soon to be doctors, Marissa Jan and Lisa Johnson, who really brought this vision into being. And um, we just want to have a conversation today about beauty plus justice and what it means to us, what we've resonated with over the past I don't know. Goodness, we've been doing this for what feels like the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, and also just highlight what you all are doing as trailblazers in this field um, and what your hopes are for the future. So um, let's get to it. And um, I guess I'll start with um, maybe you guys want to introduce yourselves. I know I gave a little bit of an intro, but you want to say more about who you are and why you decided that you wanted to spend your, let's be honest, we were spending weekends doing this. <laughs> why on earth would you do this on top of all the schoolwork, thesis work, and so on? So I don't know, Lisa, do you want to start us off? Sure, yeah. My name is Lisa Johnson. I'm a third-year PhD candidate um, in the laboratory of Christopher Srosik at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health in My thesis research is broadly on how program cell death gets dysregulated in ovarian cancer. Um, And I um, was really interested in working on this project um, because it feels very personal to me, just being a Black woman growing up dealing with hair care and different products to use, going through straightening my hair um, and being very cognizant of uh, chemical exposures from those um, different products and just sort of the uh, 
perceptions about beauty and professionalism um, and hair. And so, yeah, coming to grad school, um, this was sort of always a project or a topic that I really wanted to be involved in and focus on and bring more awareness to. So definitely working on this podcast with you all has been well worth the weekend spent. Indeed, I appreciate all of the time you've committed to being the narrator and really um, describing the story arc of this entire series. So um, thank you so much. And Marissa, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Of course. Hi, everyone. My name is Marissa Chan. I'm a PhD candidate here at Harvard Chan working with Tamara. And my work surrounds environmental justice and beauty justice, really focusing in on the community and neighborhood level drivers of safer hair product accessibility, as well as use patterns. And I was really excited to, to join on this team and work on this podcast. I think it is a really unique way to communicate our science um, in ways that I have not conducted before. And also personally, I really resonate with Lisa's stories that she just shared. I also used hair relaxers growing up um, and have just navigated my hair texture and growing into my hair texture. So I've really appreciated this space to also grow in that avenue personally. So it's been really exciting work and I have just really been appreciative of both of you throughout this process. Well, know that I really appreciate you all. Um, we started on this journey because we felt very strongly that the story needed to be told in a way that doesn't uh, really deal with and keep things in our scientific journals with a lot of scientific jargon. Uh, but to make it real for people, the people that need to um, hear this and potentially stand the most to gain and be impacted by the science and the work that we're all doing. So um, we're really grateful uh, for that. And so because we did this in a way where we were telling a story, um, and in this case, in, in focusing in on beauty plus justice, there are many different beauty injustices much of this series kind of was dedicated to telling a single story because it is a way to frame, um, you know, what in, in this case is a really, I think, challenging area. We've heard about uh, the role of individuals and these chemicals that have really complicated names like phthalates and parabens and, um, and other chemicals. We've, we've heard from toxicologists, community leaders, cosmetologists. Um, and, and in the context of this, I'm curious, as we listened, were there any ideas or parts of stories that really resonated with you all um, that, you know, leaving this journey, you'll maybe take forward and, and continue to kind of process and think about? I think something that came from each of the individual episodes that I really appreciated was highlighting these folks' stories. Um, it's really interesting to hear how folks ended up in this field and their personal connections to this space. And I think that is what makes their work even richer. So just in, from that sense, I've really appreciated digging into not only the guest work, but also their experiences and their path to this field. Um, in terms of some of the ideas that have been interwoven throughout the podcast, I think that the importance of collaborative and interdisciplinary work came up a few times and really focusing in on working with folks from diverse backgrounds. 
Um, it came up in almost every episode, most recently being Dr. Amizotas. But I really think the idea that it will take all of us working together um, with different backgrounds and experiences really resonated with me. And the focus, as you kind of discussed on the shift from the individual to more upstream drivers, um, specifically being community and neighborhood level, as well as the societal level drivers of personal care product use patterns really was important for me as well, because there's a tendency to really hear personal care products and think solely in individual level behavior, since typically product use happens like in our own bathrooms by ourselves, but uh, product use really is a product of different systems. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. The, the, um, lots of conversation right around the community and collaborative nature of building solutions. Lisa, is there anything that really resonated with you um, in, in the context of the storytelling? I mean, as a narrator, you were able to really weave the stories together. And I'm curious, like how um, even experiencing um, the storytelling from kind of weaving very diverse um, ideas, perspectives together might have struck you. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things that really resonated with me, like on a personal and a professional level. I think um, like Marissa highlighted something that just kept coming up over and over again throughout the episodes was this idea of collaborative interdisciplinary work. Um, that was something that just continually I could pull out from each episode and um, was really highlighted. Um, and that resonated with me too, especially as a basic scientist. I think particularly um, I remember in Dr. Amizoda and Dr. Dede Tete's episodes, just this idea of like bridging basic science and population health science, social science. Um, and yeah, being a basic scientist, uh, trying to find my place um, in this movement and um, wanting to be able to do the science that I want to do really involves, I feel like, working closely with population health scientists and social scientists in the community. And so um, it was just really inspiring to see ways that this is happening and um, just to sort of affirm that that is, uh, that's a need and um, there's a place for basic scientists who also think like that and how helpful that is for the beauty justice movement. Um, yeah, and then on a personal level, I think um, in Tamir Jokes Four's episode, um, the idea of the cost of beauty. Um, yeah, I'd never like thought about explicitly uh, like the time costs or the personal costs, and um, that was an early episode, and I think it. Uh, really gave me the push I needed to like make changes in my own life, like going from having straight hair to getting my hair locked um, and just sort of thinking about what sacrifices I'm making um, and what I, what I want to change to sort of uh, more deeply invest in the beauty justice movement on a personal level. That's powerful because Lisa, I think we've each gone through a transformation, right? As we've, um, done these episodes and listened. Um, and I, I, you know, both of it, both, both this idea of like how we show up in the world, but also like being more aware of the cost 
Um, and that we, while because we are at a school of public health, we think oftentimes about the health costs, but also thinking about the, the financial cost um, and the psychological cost um, in, in kind of navigating and, and dealing with this and, and then time. And one of the things that struck me um, in one of our more recent episodes was when um, Susan Peterkin mentioned as a cosmetologist that they're not taught how to work with natural hair, um, yeah. you know, that is, is Afro hair at, at like in cosmetology school. And I'm blown away by the fact that um, how are people, like, how is that even designed? Like, you know, it gets back to this issue, Marissa, that you're bringing up about these upstream factors, but like what structures, what systems were put in place where we said, we don't need to learn this. This is not an important lesson for people. And, and then what does that mean downstream for what folks are exposed to um, and, and impacts on, you know, health, time, money, resources, all of that. Um, so I, I just, that's not something I'd ever really thought about. And, and that was new uh, for me too. Um, I'm also curious that I kind of want to circle back to, um, you know, a point that Lisa, you just brought up um, as a basic scientist, you know, as a part of doing this, this um, podcast, we represent different you know, sub-disciplines within, you know, um, our, our field of environmental health and public health more broadly um, in that, Marissa, you're looking at macro level factors um, oftentimes. So place-based factors, um, how might historic policies imp impact, you know, place factors, for example, what's available in certain neighborhoods as with regards to safer products, a lot of the work that you're doing is centered on that. And, and Lisa, on the, the, the other side of this, you know, kind of honing in, you're thinking about what's happening inside the body. Okay. So how does it, being exposed to some of these chemicals and environmental factors um, really affect um, health through the actual cell level? Like what's, what's happening? Are cells dying? How might that you know, um, really put people at risk of things like cancer um, and so on. We even have a, a, a lawsuit that we can talk a bit more about uh, down the line. So really, you know, thinking about the impacts of um, things across the trajectory, whether you're talking about like really, you know, things around us and the policies that affect us to the, the biological level. So I, I have a question for each of you um, or for both of you. And Marissa, I'm just curious, you know, in doing the place-based work, um, how have you found, and can you tell us a bit more about the work you're doing in the space of beauty justice as it relates to these place-based factors? And then what do you see for potential solution in that? So as I kind of talked through and as you had introduced, my work really sits in this space of ex examining the community and neighborhood level factors that are related to both product use as well as product availability. And some of our preliminary work, which is kind of a part of my dissertation, has been examining these differences in hair product safety between neighborhoods in Boston, Massachusetts. And so we have been going out, going to stores, taking photos of the hair product sections and entering data 
Um, and so we've collected data from these photos and we've also used environmental working group skin deep database hazard score. EWG, just as a brief note, is a organization that really sits in the consumer safety space. They work in water, consumer products, as well as personal care products and food. Um, and they have this publicly available data set database that allows folks to look up a hair product and see an associated hazard score. And that was our use of um, our way to evaluate product safety. And so we collected data on more than 14,000 hair products across the city of Boston, which is an ongoing feat. We're, we're actually expanding that work. But um, first off, just huge shout out to all the folks who've helped out with data collection and data entry. This product would be nowhere without them. Um, but really from that work, what we found is that low-income communities and communities of color, most notably Mission Hill and Roxbury, had more than a twofold higher risk of finding these high hazard hair products compared to Beacon Hill, which is a predominantly non-Hispanic white and higher SES or socioeconomic status community. So this is really building the narrative surrounding a lack of access to safe products experienced by certain communities and for me, it really supports this idea that we cannot shop our way out of this issue. It should not be on communities um, and individuals to try to navigate these complex chemical ingredient labels as you talked through like parabens and phthalates, like what does that all really mean? Um, and so there are really broader drivers of both product accessibility as well as potentially safety. So that's a little bit of background to that work. We're really expanding that right now, um, really starting up my dissertation project, which is titled Restyle. Um, that stands for Retail Environment and Hairstyling Exposure Study. And that piece is really shifting towards identifying community-driven um, solutions. So really not only documenting these differences, but what can we actually do about it moving forward? One thing that I just want to also bring attention to and as you were doing this work um, is the importance of where we could find information and where we couldn't. So again, in this context of like the individual level, like I love that you are thinking about place-based factors and really thinking about the community level, but sometimes we expect, as you said, like the individual to be able to, to make their decision. And we, they have a potential availability or accessibility to these apps that might be able to help in decision-making. But can you say a little bit more about what you found in say Chinatown, for example? So among the um, Asian community, there were some differences in what, what you know information was available and wasn't available here. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting finding. And it unfortunately adds to this idea that there's not only a lack of access to safe products, but also information about products used by certain communities. So uh, one community that we had selected based on the fact that they, they had the highest percentage of Asian residents was Chinatown in Boston, which is a Boston neighborhood. And we unfortunately could not include Chinatown in our analysis based on the fact that it had such a high percentage of missing data. Um, in fact, there were only nine out of the 159 products that we found in Chinatown that had EWG or Environmental Working Group hazard scores. Um, and that also played out in other neighborhoods. So the communities with the most missing data were found to be communities of color. Really, really powerful and important points. And, you know, Lisa, I don't know that if you know this, my, my background is molecular biology. So um, 
prior to my, <laughs> yeah, I tell people that and they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I, I once upon a time spent my time uh, doing lab and bench-based work. Um, and so I, I definitely have a strong appreciation for better understanding how higher exposures to things that we really believe and have evidence for being harmful can have even more extreme or severe effects on our health. And I'm curious if you can say more about some of the work that you're doing, uh, you know, regarding molecular mechanisms, thinking about some of these environmental um, exposures, but also if you could speak a bit more to what you think the role of toxicologists or other basic scientists are in the beauty justice movement. Yeah, um, so my work is sort of tangentially related to um, beauty justice. Like I said, I'm studying ovarian cancer and um, particularly looking at a specific program cell death pathway. So our body needs to um, get rid of damaged or excess or misfunctioning cells just to maintain health. Um, and proper tissue function. Um, and so this uh, mechanism, apoptosis, is the way that the body does that. And so when this process gets dysregulated, um, if you have too much apoptosis, then that can lead to diseases like neurodegenerative diseases where you're losing valuable cells that your body needs to function. And then um, if you have too little apoptosis, then that can lead to diseases like cancer, where cells that should be cleared um, remain and can continue to grow and divide and um, take over the body. Um, and so um, in addition to kind of understanding how this gets dysregulated in the process of forming ovarian cancer, I'm also interested in um, understanding kind of what um, other exogenous or outside factors um, contribute to um, the development or could contribute to the development of um, ovarian cancer. And um, I'm mostly in the cancer field. And so uh, there's been, especially with some types of cancer, there's been um, sort of a difficulty in connecting environmental exposures to that cancer type, just because thinking about routes of exposure or um, the complexity of um, chemical mixtures that we're exposed to, um, figuring out how to model that in the lab can be difficult because we often work with like reductionist models so that we can very clearly um, determine or demonstrate that this, uh, this component, this factor causes this outcome. Um, so there is a challenge um, in connecting those things, um, but I'm interested in sort of exploring new models, for example, like follicular fluid, which is the fluid that surrounds um, the growing egg or follicle in the ovaries. Um, there's been some interesting research coming out, actually looking at different um, environmental chemicals that are found in the follicular fluid, which would come in direct contact with ovarian cells or um, fallopian tube cells. And so, um, looking at those chemicals and being able to, some of which are uh, in print disrupting chemicals like they found PFOS um, 
chemicals in follicular fluid. So being able to uh, connect those chemicals um, to different outcomes that they produce in um, relevant cell types um, is something that I'm interested in and focusing on. Um, and in terms of how I think basic scientists and toxicologists can be involved in the beauty justice movement, I really think that, um, and I think this is getting better, but I've noticed that there's kind of a siloing of basic scientists and population health scientists or the community. And um, as we've all discussed, beauty justice work is very interdisciplinary. It requires us to work across disciplines um, and I think really necessitates working with the community to understand like what are the relevant exposures, what are the things that people in the community, the ones who are directly affected, what do, what do they care about? Um, and so I think being able to, for basic scientists to integrate or interface more with um, community members and um, population health scientists, I think um, is a good way to sort of help us tailor like our laboratory experiments to what people are seeing in the real world and what people are concerned about. What I'm hearing you say is that there is a place for basic scientists to really join the environmental justice or in this case, beauty justice movement in kind of not just um, you know being at the bench, but also really getting out into the community, hearing the concerns and being able to design studies that are community relevant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think also like it's important to, I mean, for better or for worse, um, I think policymakers or other folks like to see the demonstration of like how this chemical is connected to this outcome. Um, and so I think that data that basic scientists can provide can also bolster arguments um, for why like these chemicals are bad or they have uh, negative impacts on health. So yeah, I think that's another important role that basic scientists can play. And like you said, definitely think that basic scientists um, should be involved in the beauty justice movement and have, have a role there. I'm an epidemiologist, so I'm somewhere in between the two of you um, in the type of work that I do, uh, both looking at individual level risk factors, uh, what people might um, say they use, and then, you know, looking at on average, what, you know, risk might be for a particular disease. We look a lot in our lab at cardiovascular related risk factors, pregnancy outcomes, and so on. Um, what you are doing, Lisa, is really setting up experiments that help to say, how does that work? And when you use the term reductionist models, it's taking out all the other noise that's happening in people's lives. People eat certain foods, they, you know, exercise or not, they, you know, um, may work in a certain industry or not. And so there's all these other things that can be impacting health. And you take, you know, a particular experiment and you design it in a way where you can say, okay, I just want to know, does, you know, this particular exposure impact, you know, a particular um, biological outcome? that's related to these diseases. And I think that's really powerful in our ability to design experiments that um, get at um, the exposure differences 
in populations that really could be attributed to the things Marissa's looking at um, around place-based factors. So if I don't have safer products available to me, so I'm exposed to higher levels of certain chemicals, what impact might that have on my health? And so I love that collectively, we're kind of looking at this across the continuum of health. Um, I just want to also, you know, see if you all could say a bit more. Um, the truth is that I guess I'm in mid-career these days. I didn't know that I was there <laughs> until now. And I think the next generation of scientists are interested in having these conversations about how beauty justice and more broadly environmental justice um, not only exist, but what we can do about it. These ideas of really being able to design and have solution um, solutions um, really come to being. And I'm curious, you know, what you all think about in the context of the, the future of beauty justice and the clean beauty movement in the context of your peers and what your peers are talking about, thinking about, what do you think the future of science in this area might look like um, with respect to beauty justice? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. We really need to ensure that community knowledge, voices, and experiences are really driving the work. Um, and I think a first step, which is really important in community-driven work and in a lot of these spaces, is to listen when you first enter certain spaces. These folks have a lot of experiences and an understanding of the issues that are impacting them in a way that we will never understand, um, unless we are directly from that community and directly impacted by that work. So for folks who are getting engaged in environmental beauty justice work, I would say that is an important first step. And just in general, if we're speaking towards the clean beauty space, I do think that it is incredibly important for us in terms of future work to focus on not only the development of just safe products, but the development of safe products that are more commonly used by Black folks and by communities of color, since that is not a focus of the current clean beauty justice movement. Um, that did come up in one of our past episodes with Boma Brown West and check it out for folks who haven't listened to it yet. But I do think that is a really important focus as well in terms of the beauty justice and the clean beauty movement um, and where a lot of this work needs to go towards. Yeah, I'll just echo. I agree with everything that uh, Marissa said and also just want to yeah highlight that. Um, yeah, I see within the current clean beauty or beauty justice, well, I guess clean beauty movement, um, there has been a focus on uh, products that are not necessarily, or not really marketed to women of color. And so um, as we keep moving forward in the, with the beauty justice movement, I think keeping a focus on equity and intersectionality and making sure that we're not recreating systems of exclusion or oppression, um, as we seek out clean beauty is really important. Um, yeah, and really making sure that across income levels, across cultures, races, that everybody is able to find um, accessible, affordable, clean beauty products. So I have a related question for you all. Um, one of the kind of big um, issues that um, occurred while we 
we're in the midst of doing this uh, podcast is uh, the passing of the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act of 2022. Um, prior to the passing of that, um, federal laws around what was allowed in cosmetics really haven't changed since 1930s. And so I'm curious, A, you know, what your thoughts might be on the passing of this law and B, whether, you know, Marissa, you kind of already spoke to this to some degree, like what, what do you think both of you might policy uh, play a role in, in all of this? What might we have gained from this, this the passing of this act um, really as it relates to beauty justice issues? I really do think policy has a huge role in beauty justice. Um, it is kind of crazy, the fact that before this passing of MOCRA or the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act, the fact that there has not been any major update since the 1930s, like that is kind of insane. If you think about it, um, this is an important step forward in terms of product safety. And there are some updates, just one that comes to mind that I remember is there's a requirement to report serious events to the Food and Drug Administration or FDA. Um, additionally, the FDA will have increased authority to recall products on the market if they are found to contain a substance that is um, observed to be harmful to human health. And I do think there are important steps in the right direction, but there does need to be additional work in terms of defining safety as well as protecting the folks who are disproportionately burdened. So this is important, but there is a lot of work that needs to be done still. I think my final point is just the fact that while policy is incredibly important in this space, it is just one avenue that we need to go down towards beauty justice. And so this will have to work in tangent with research, with basic scientists, with community folks. So it will really take all of us to, to reach beauty justice. Yeah, again, I agree with everything that Marissa said. Um, there's definitely still room for improvement in terms of um, what, what do safe products look like um, and uh, sort of defining what safety means. This is definitely a step forward. And I think as Marissa stated previously, we can't necessarily purchase our way out of um, beauty injustice. So needing needing regulatory boundaries i think is necessary goes hand in hand with um needing to create also safer raw materials or safer chemicals to go in these products an important thing that the podcast has highlighted is um that sort of these uh cultural societal drivers of um beauty product use are not small. We want people to be able to look the way they want to look and um, be able to have products that work well for them. And so being able to uh, have safe products that work well for them will also require um, innovation in the chemical, the chemical space as well. Thanks so much for joining us for part one of our finale episode of Beauty Plus Justice. The podcast may be ending, but we hope that you'll continue to revisit the episodes and to share them with friends, family, and other people in your networks. 
We'd also love to hear what you learned from the podcast and how it impacted you. And as always, we appreciate you leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast. Please be sure to join us next time for the last part of the finale episode, where we'll get more personal and talk about how our backgrounds and life stories brought us to this work. We'll also get to hear from the next generation about what beauty and beauty justice means to them. Be well, listeners, and talk to you again soon. This episode was produced and edited by Marissa Chan, Lisa Johnson, and Felicia Haycoop, with assistance from Elkania Chaudhry-Polino. We received funding from the Environmental Defense Fund.